Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 23. Horcruxes. Harry could feel the Felix Felices wearing off as he crept back into the castle. The front door had remained unlocked for him, but on the third floor he met Peeves and only narrowly avoided detection. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hey Casper, do you think that Fort Collins, Colorado is called Fort Collins because the children of Fort Collins are so good at building pillow forts? I thought it was named after Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice. Ooh. But who knows? I like that, <laughs> except I hate the idea that Mr. Collins would get a town <laughs> named after him. Either way, what I do know is that we have a sacred reading group there. It's the Sleeping Dragons run by Elizabeth Scofidio. And if you want to join the Fort Collins reading group or any other local reading group around the world, go to Harry Potter Sacred Text forward slash groups.
So Casper, I taught high school English for a year in Los Angeles, which is my hometown. And for my ninth grade class, I was assigned to teach the book Night by Elie Wiesel, which takes place in Auschwitz. And so I thought it would sort of be an easy class if I asked my grandpa to come and talk to the class since he was an Auschwitz survivor. And so I had the students for their homework prepare questions that they could ask him, and he came in and just sort of answered their questions. And like, jokes aside about, you know, an easy lesson to plan, it felt like a real gift that I could give that like this group of students would meet a survivor. And one of my students, Jordan, asked him, how did you survive? And my grandpa in that moment told a story that I had never heard before. And I was in my late 20s at this point, had thought I had heard the repertoire of my grandpa's Holocaust stories, right? Like the ones he felt comfortable sharing, the regular anecdotes. And this one was just a story about how the day that his bunker got set to the gas chambers was a day that he had volunteered to be in the mailroom. They needed an extra volunteer in the mailroom. He volunteered and avoided death. And because of that, it was just sheer luck. And that was the message that he wanted my students to take home, that it was absolute dumb luck. And I was just really surprised that I had never heard that story and felt like, oh, my God, was I, like, not paying attention when he had told this before? And years later, I mentioned that story to my parents, and they were like, that did not happen to Papa. And I was like, yes, it did. He told my students. I I remember the question, whatever. My parents were like, no. And my father, very understandably, really hates any drama added to facts of Holocaust stories in my family. And so he was, like, quite offended. He was like, no, Vanessa, I've never heard that story. That is not one of Papa's stories. And I was like, okay, okay. And I sort of thought we would never get to the bottom of it because Papa had pretty severe dementia at that point. He was well into his 90s. I had sort of relegated it to my own confusion and that, like, maybe I'd seen a movie with that story and conflated things. But my mom saw Papa either later that day or the next day and asked him, and he was sharp enough in that moment to be like, yeah, that happened. That's exactly right, what Vanessa said. And my mom called me and was like, you know, it's wild. Peppa confirmed the story. He told it to us exactly how you told it to us. And it's just absolutely wild that we had never heard that story. And my mom and I just had this conversation about how lucky we were. Like, not only was he lucky in that moment of survival, but that we were lucky that the story got unearthed somehow. And I think that It is possible that Jordan asked him that direct question of how did you survive, which none of us ever thought to ask him, and is actually, I think, a really important story to understand my grandfather and to understand a lot about at least how I see the Holocaust. And so I'm really interested in that with memory, right? Which memories get remembered and which ones only get remembered when a 14-year-old strange kid asks you the right question? And which ones we just forget about and get lost to history entirely. Yeah. And also that memories are kind of gifts that we pass on. And part of me wonders, was this a story that he'd intentionally not shared and then maybe later did want to share? Because I do think if Dumbledore had told Harry at the end of book two, by the way, I think what happened with this diary is that it's a Horcrux and A, B, and C, I really think Harry would have been overwhelmed and it wouldn't have been the right moment to share a memory. So that's interesting to me as well. Yeah. Before we jump more into that, though, do you want to remind me what happens? 
in this chapter. <laughs> I've memorized it entirely. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so Harry's coming back and it's the, 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 the liquid luck is wearing off. And so suddenly he's like going to be seen by Peeves. But then um, the fat lady is like, oh, password's changed. You can't come in. He's like, oh, no. And then um, uh, one of the ghosts says, well, Dumbledore just came home. You can go ask him. And Harry's very excited. So goes up to the office, comes in, um, and Dumbledore's just returned very tired, hand not looking great, shares the memory. They jump in the memory. They see that Slughorn told everything about Horcruxes. You can do multiple Horcruxes. And then there's a whole analysis of how many are left and what we have to do. Do I have to recap a chapter if I hate the chapter? I thought this was a juicy, juicy chapter full of theological ideas. Oh my God, I hate it. Okay, well, recap what you loved about it. It'll keep it short and sweet. 30 seconds on the clock. Okay. Three, two, one, go. So in Slughorn's memory, we do see that Tom Riddle is like very suave. Harry's impressed with how good he is at convincing Slughorn for things. And then in the analysis, Dumbledore really wants to highlight for Harry that it's important that Harry can love, that that's actually a really big strength, and that the prophecy Mm. is only the prophecy because Voldemort validated the prophecy. And then Dumbledore is like basically brainwashing Harry to make Harry feel as though it's his idea to go to war and that he's not just a soldier in Dumbledore's army. I love that I was moved by your recap of the love argument. I was like, oh, yes. (laughs) Can we start at the very, very beginning of the chapter? That's always my favorite part. Okay. So it's like the Felix Felicis is wearing off. Uh And then three lucky things happen. The front door is open. Peeves doesn't see him. He's able to dodge away from Peeves at the last second. We think that the fat lady is being obnoxious when really the fact that he's kept out for a minute means that nearly headless Nick is coming by. And so I just think that the Felix Felicis doesn't actually wear off, at least until after he gets to Dumbledore's office, right? He even remembers the right password, (laughs) even though it's been weeks since he's in Dumbledore. And I think that in looking back on this night, he remembers two different moments, the getting Slughorn's memory and the going and telling Dumbledore. And so in his head, the Felix Felicis is wearing off right when the Slughorn memory ended, when really, I think he's still high on Felix Felicis. A hundred percent. Oh, I love this reading. It's so interesting that your opening story was so much about luck. And this situation is also all about luck in some way. And and whether it's natural luck or kind of chemically enhanced luck is to be debated. But what's in there? Yeah. So much of what memory is, is taking nonsensical things like luck and trying to turn them into a story. And I cannot memorize things that don't make sense to me. If I can't tell a story about it, I can't just rote memorize it. There's the theory of the memory palace that one of the ways to remember things is to create an image along with memories in your head and, like, build a castle of memories in your head. Like, I feel like we look back on our memories and we start telling these stories of, like, it wasn't luck. It was hard work that I got into Harvard. When it's like, no, it also was that I was a white lady. And Well, I, I also think that luck itself is a story, right? Like, I mean, I'm I'm even wondering, back to your sharing about your grandfather, because he shared that story with you much later in his life. And... I wonder if he maybe saw it as luck then, but he didn't see it as luck 20 years before. Because luck is just a story we tell ourselves about things that happened. 
Yeah, my theory on that memory is that we never asked my grandpa his theory on how he survived. You know, we thought we knew all these little stories, Mm. but Jordan actually asked the question, how did you survive, which was not something that we ever would – it never would have occurred to us to ask that. Yeah. I think that that's true for Slughorn too, right, is like Harry – is lucky with the Felix Foley says, and one of the things he figures out is the exact right question to ask or the right exact right pitch to get the memory. Well, it's interesting because when we heard about the memory in Slughorn's retelling of it, the truth this time, what struck me so much is how much in common Harry has with Riddle. Because Riddle is trying to extract information from Slughorn that he knows Slughorn doesn't want to give. Now, his strategy is appealing to uh, Slughorn's own desires in terms of the gift that he gives of the, the candied pineapple. But he also uses this total like ninja skill set of both building Slughorn up, but also kind of making himself small of like, oh, I'm just interested and like, I'm just exploring. And in some ways, Harry, although he doesn't drug Slughorn, drugs himself to the same effect of impacting Slughorn's behavior. And I have to say, I felt like Harry's strategy is much more ethically dubious than Riddle's. I mean, unless Riddle was also using Felix Felicis and we just didn't know it. Or Riddle was lacing the pineapples, you know, with Veritas serum or whatever. (gasps) Because he gave them as a gift. (laughs) Yeah. But I love this idea that maybe drugging yourself is also a form of manipulating somebody else. I... I really love that point, and I think it's further complicated by the fact that Slughorn gave him the drug. (laughs) Yes, that's right. He's definitely using Slughorn's own weapons against him. Well, just looking at the memory itself, in a lot of ways, Dumbledore actually already knows what the content is of Slughorn's memory. I mean, there's a little question about whether the number seven is really clear for him, but both what the Horcruxes might be, how to make them, but mostly the ambition that there's more than one. He already knows, but there's something important about this memory. And I I wonder if we can figure out why. Is it that he can show Harry or, or what else? That's interesting. My theory would be that he wants it to be super confirmed information because he is risking Harry's life over it. Mm. or asking Harry to risk his own life over it. Well, that never bothered him before. Yeah, (laughs) but, like, you might as well be sure. I mean, he's conscious, of course, that his end is coming, and I can absolutely understand his wanting to create as firm a ground as possible. But I'm also thinking that this actually is is an influencing strategy, and this is maybe where your negative reaction to the chapter came from, which is to ensure Harry's commitment to the mission. Yes. You know, experience is always a better teacher than information, and he's giving Harry an experience which which will help him to continue hunting Horcruxes. I think that's exactly right, at least about why I hate this chapter. <laughs> the second half of this chapter is just sheer, brilliant manipulation of a child. Mm. There's a line where Harry says that it's the difference between being dragged into an arena and walking into it on your own with your head held high. Mm. And Dumbledore has just convinced Harry that it is the latter and not the former. Mm. And I think that, yeah, by showing him the specifics of the memory and doing it in narrative form rather than information, he has convinced Harry that this is the way it has to be done. Yeah. I hate it. I hate it. I I find myself conflicted because, you know, there is something true in what Dumbledore 
elicits out of Harry that he would be motivated to do this either way. I think Harry has proven himself to be a person who is not only committed and brave and skilled and, you know, many, many other things. I'm not sure that Harry is vengeance-seeking. But I don't think he would do it for vengeance. And maybe that's where it feels fake to me. I think he would do it because it's the right thing to do. I think that element of, yeah, I'm going to get him back is maybe upped by Dumbledore here for sure. Yeah, I think that I now have a little bit more forgiveness for Dumbledore than I did while reading on my own because, as you said, I wonder if he is resorting to cheap tricks because he knows he's dying. And if he had more time, he would be allowing this to be more gradual. I think so. But this conversation is very speedy to me. And, like, these are the lessons I need you to get. No, Harry, it's not because of the prophecy. And I need you to understand that because I need the motivation to come from within because I need you to follow through, right? And I I think that maybe the manipulation game is upped because he knows he's dying, which is a planning for memory, right? Mm. It is a how do I want to be remembered? I'm going to be gone. What do I want Harry to remember is the most important parts of his mission. He's not going to remember every lesson I taught him. I need him to remember this. Yeah. And I'm suddenly seeing the shift, you know, into book five, we have this prominence of prophecy. And now into book six, we have this prominence of memory. Mm. And that it actually shifts Harry's motivation and his clarity about what his actions should be in book seven. I'd never seen that triptych in those last three books like that. Yeah, I hadn't either. The moment that touches me in this chapter is when Dumbledore says to him, do you know how beautiful what you saw in the mm. mirror of Erised is? I love that callback. I do too. And so what was interesting to me about that in memory is how we can have memories of imagined things. Like I remember the things I used to fantasize about. <laughs> and I remember the hopes and dreams that I used to have. And those are whole memories about things that never happened and yet are so real. And especially because the memories of the dreams we used to have are not the dreams we would have now. And there's something really not only sweet, but kind of bittersweet about it because the memories actually encapture, I don't know, it's it's a version of ourselves that otherwise we might have lost touch with. Yeah, I know it's like a very obvious question that I somehow didn't ask myself when we read book one. But this question of what would I see mm. in the mirror of Erised, right? It just gave me a newfound appreciation for Harry that that is what he sees, that all he longs for is love and that he Mm. loves these parents even though he doesn't know them. I was like, wow, he is exceptional (laughs) loving. Mm. Because I feel like even if I was 11-year-old Harry, I would maybe see like Dudley suffering in the mirror of Erised. (laughs) Or like Vernon and Petunia apologizing and hugging me. But the fact that he has this just like complete capacity for hope and love is really beautiful. I mean, there's so much, of course, there's so much in this chapter of Dumbledore talking about love and talking about the soul. I mean, I feel like we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about some of the assertions that Dumbledore is making about how the world works, at least the magical world. Because first of all, there's the affirmation that when you are alive, you have a soul. And that the soul is meant to be whole, but that it can be broken in parts and it gets broken down through violence. 
And the less soul we have or the more souls we split, the less human we become. I mean, there's a lot of theological ideas here about who we are. And I don't want to say that it's true for everyone in the wizarding world, but at least it's a theory of Horcruxes that's presented by Slughorn and accepted by Dumbledore, which is compelling. Does that, like, do you like how they talk about the soul? I am just like such a dead inside atheist. Can you tell me what a soul is? Well, but that's my question, right? Because like, there's so many ways of thinking about what a soul is. I mean, when you think about the kind of great medieval images of souls ascending to heaven, right? It's the, it's this part of you that's kind of invisible. It's some continuation of you as a specific identity. I mean, one of my favorite descriptions of souls is not that they are invisible things that live in us, but that we live in them. So that actually the soul kind of mediates the body and the world, that there's something inherently relational in it. There's many, many different conceptions of what a soul is. And I think what I've always struggled with with the Potter series is, I guess part of one of my assertions would be is that the soul cannot be broken, right? Like that, I love the idea that John O'Donohue talks about that there's a part of you that can never be wounded. And for me, that's the soul, like that it's beyond the reach of any violence, but we're given a version of the soul here that can be broken and that is violated. I guess I struggle with that because it might suggest that like some people are irredeemable, right? Like that they're not worthy of love or belonging. And that's hard. So I disagree. I do think that we can break souls. Mm. And I, one of the theories I love that you're helping me excavate in these books is that the easiest way to break a soul is to do something evil, that we can break our own souls by being cruel to other humans. Mm. I think that's right. Whether or not that broken soul is irredeemable is a different question to me. But I do love the idea that it is harder for me to break your soul than it is for me to break my uh, own soul. Yeah. That by not living up to my own potential of kindness, I can break my own soul. You know, George Saunders has his, like, great speech that he gave at Syracuse University 10 years ago or whatever now where he says, the biggest regret in my life are the moments that I look back on and I wasn't as kind as I could have been. I don't know if he would say those were soul-breaking moments, but they certainly weren't soul-growing moments. Yeah. Well, now so now I'm being convinced because I there is something about like the soul growing, which I find very resonant, right? Like that it can grow in its capacity of, of generosity or, th- or that it grows us maybe somehow. So that there is movement within the soul, right? That it's not a static thing. But then we might also have to accept that it can shrink. And I I think maybe the other piece of the information that we get from this chapter of the conception of the soul in the Potter books is that it's only murder that can break the soul, right? There's It doesn't mention other forms of violence, for example, or, or other forms right. of goodness. So it feels perhaps too binary. And, and maybe we're only getting a simplified version, right? So, so I don't want to be too critical, but there's a lot of assumptions built into this kind of theology that we've never really dug into before. And I think it's important to note because it's going to have such import throughout book seven. Yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. So my favorite thing happens in this chapter, which is that the theme word shows up in the text and we actually get it a number of times. Yeah, because they are in a memory. In a memory. <laughs> it was so annoying. <laughs> but what I loved is that we have these interesting combination of words. So we hear about a mere memory, the crucial memory, and just how malleable memories are and how they can be unimportant to one person and crucial to another. Just the ways in which memories have a life of their own even. I mean, we learn how, because it's a Horcrux, the diary kind of has a mind of its own or maybe a soul of its own. It has an intentionality and activation potential. And so I just love that memories are not dead objects that we recall from a library, but like living, potent things that have beauty and danger depending on what they want with us. That was exciting to me. Yeah, I like that a lot, that memories can be weaponized. I mean, I think about that with people who have done me wrong, right? It's like, <laughs> I can tell people certain memories I have of you and you wouldn't. Right. You wouldn't like the picture you paint. Right. But, but can we go one step further and say that it's not you weaponizing the memory, but that the memory has its own desire? That's interesting. Can you say more about that? Well, just in the sense that like, 
I feel like memory itself is a practice that if I allow certain memories to, to find a place in my heart, you know, where I feed them essentially, I don't know. I feel like there's a discipline in what we remember. And that's not to say that, you know, we should just forget the things that are hard, right? Like there are traumas and horrific things that we can't just choose to forget. But I do think there are some things that we can choose to remember, which we might otherwise let fall away that actually can be really important in helping us live a life of friendship or forgiveness or joy or, you know, the kind of life that I hope we all want to live. Yeah, it's just the discipline of that gets confusing, right? Because my understanding of sort of the science of memory is that the more that you think about a certain memory, the more you write a story about that memory Mm. and the less clearly you remember actual details. And so that the sort of freshest memories are memories that you're remembering for the very first time. Mm. There's just like an interesting neurological component to that for me of like, Wanting to tell certain stories and cherish certain memories, but sort of the more you cherish it, the more you wear it down. Well, maybe that's when memories become stories. I think about old family photographs. I'm sure the first time I saw that photograph, it was a memory, but now it's a story I've concocted around the photograph. You know what I mean? Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. Vanessa, we're back with Pardes, our wonderful four-step Jewish reading practice. And I've chosen a little passage for us to do a close reading with. It's towards the end of the chapter. So it's a little snippet of a sentence, not a whole sentence. But he was counting too much upon Lucius's fear of a master. So the shot, which is just the kind of surface reading of, of what's going on, at this point, we're reviewing what happened in book two. We're remembering that the diary was brought into Hogwarts with Lucius's cunning, right? He put it into the school bag of Ginny. And it, he's trying to incriminate Arthur and to then get rid of Dumbledore. So, you know, it's it's not a bad plan. What he doesn't realize is that it contains a piece of <laughs> Voldemort's soul and uh, ends up exposing that and really giving Dumbledore the clue that uh, Voldemort has created Horcruxes. So it's actually a massively important moment. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Um, But what Lucius is also trying to do is get rid of a piece of incriminating evidence. Because, of course, at this point, Voldemort's disappeared for a long time. So he's he's just trying to get rid of stuff that would link him to Voldemort. So there's this fear that Lucius has. Well, and Dumbledore also does, he's doing a lot of philosophizing about fear of oppressors, right? He says that all tyrants are afraid of the people they oppress. So Dumbledore is doing a lot of like breaking down who's afraid of who in power structures. Right, right. So the second step is remes. And the way we do this follows an an old rabbinic practice of finding one word and then seeing where we can find the same word appearing across the whole text, the whole canon. So I would love to choose the word master. Because the thing I'm immediately thinking of is the relationship between Harry and Dobby that we've talked about more recently. And of course, also between Sirius and Creature. And Creature and Harry eventually. Right. Like there's this really interesting complexity of being forced to do something that you don't want to do. And of course, between Lucius and Dobby at the very beginning of the books. And Winky and Barty Crouch and how like Winky like misses her master. Ugh. So yucky. Well, and and so how can we see Lucius and Voldemort through those lenses of wizards and house elves, right? Wait, can we think of more master uses? 
because there's also like mastery where like Hermione has just mastered apparition. Nice. Right? There's mastery of a subject. There's also Dumbledore's headmaster. Oh, nice. In book one, Snape is called the potions master. And Snape is all over this whole chapter, I think, invisibly. At some point, Dumbledore says, I'm told that Voldemort's anger was, you know, beyond anything else. And like, that's from Snape. Ooh. Okay, so I just think that there's like being the master of a subject, Mm. which is something you earn versus like being someone's master, which is about exploitation and ownership and not at all. And it's entirely about power and not about actually having earned it. Right. Which is why I love the Dobby analogy so much, because we see Dobby in two different relationships. Like, I don't know if he'd still call Harry Potter his master. No, he would call him his friend. But there's an attitude of service towards Harry, which is not far from the attitude of service that he gave the Malfoys. But the spirit in which it's done is completely different. Absolutely, right? We think of, like, waiters as someone who is serving you, but also an acts of service is one of the ways to show love. Right. Well, and I'm now suddenly thinking, you know, so much of, of Dumbledore's tyranny teaching makes us think about how Harry is the one who's going to rise up against Voldemort. But it's actually the Malfoys who play such a vital part of that resistance to Voldemort in the end. And and in some ways, we're seeing that writing on the wall here that Lucius is already perhaps cowardly or at least not loyal in the way that Voldemort wants. And that, you know, we're going to see that with Narcissa especially turning, you know, very subtly but importantly against Voldemort at a, at a crucial moment. Right. So now we think about this piece of text as something which we try and find a message in, something that we might use as a teaching moment, as it were. So let me read it one more time. He was counting too much upon Lucius's fear of a master. I would preach on the question of what is it that I'm counting on too much. Ooh. Like I count on my car too much, right? Mm. Like I I used to be like a real walker and biker and like now I don't feel like I have the time to spend so much time commuting and I'm just like counting on my car when like I could structure my life differently so I had time to walk and bike more mm. and I just like don't. And then there are, you know, even more insidious versions of it, which is like, I just, I count on the world to work in a certain way that oppresses a lot of people, right? Like, I expect my phone to work, and I always expect to have this kind of phone, which counts on lithium batteries, which counts on slave labor. So, like, what is it that I count on that I've just let become invisible to me? Mm. What about you, Casper? It feels kind of obvious, but the insufficiency of fear as a leader to try and bring people along with you. And I I don't think there's any leadership role I have right now where I'm, you know, inspiring people with fear. But I guess maybe maybe a better way to think about it is where am I afraid of a leader? One of the things that has been at the back of my mind, especially in civic opportunities that I think about, is my status as, you know, a green card holder and and I don't know that I'm afraid. I'm just a little bit afraid of doing direct action, which I might get arrested for, for example. Now, I'd be afraid of that either way because it takes so much courage and I don't always feel like I'm a very courageous person. But there's things where I I feel probably hemmed in by fear too much. That seems like a reasonable thing to be afraid of. Well, yes. I guess what I'd want to do at least is be able to be conscious of what the fear is that I have. Right. You know, it might still be the right decision to to do that, but I don't want to be doing it out of fear. I want to be doing it out of 
reasoned awareness. Sure, 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 sure. So let's go to our final step of Pardes, which is the sowed. This is the secret that's hidden somewhere within this text, which may or may not arrive, just like a little swallow landing on a perch somewhere. And so I'll, I'll read it one more time, and we'll just take a couple moments of quiet to see if a sowed arrives for either of us. He was counting too much upon Lucius's fear of a master. He was counting too much upon Lucius's fear of a master. The sowed that came to me is that we're all counting too much. Like counting our money, counting. I feel like it's become a thing in the last couple of years, probably because of Goodreads, that people set like book yes. goals. Yes. And I have really gotten caught up in that too. And because of that, I've had this like 3,000 page book that I've been wanting to read forever that I just keep not reading because it'll take me six months and then I'll, I won't hit a big book goal. And I just think that we're all counting too much is the sode I would that just occurred to me. Honestly, I can't think of anything as good as that, especially because counting itself might not be bad, but it's what we count that gets in the way. Like the number of books is way less useful than the number of pages. Or just the amount of time you spend reading. Right. Or the amount of pleasure you find in life and if if reading helps you get that right like i think so much we we measure the wrong thing because it's a an insufficient proxy for the thing we actually care about right like exactly like what you said it, it, what we really care about is like how am i choosing to spend my time and therefore spend my days it's not can i tick off this book because it was you know 45 pages long and actually mostly pictures which is awesome <laughs> but it, it it's not the true spirit of the mission Oh, no. I set an overly ambitious book goal last year of a book a week. And because I was so fixated on that goal, I, like, wouldn't read long articles. Right. Because I was like, that'll be my two hours of reading today and it won't be toward a book. It's so dumb. Like, <laughs> it's so dumb. So this year I don't have a—I'm, like, not counting what I read. I'm just reading. It's all good. So good. Well, thank you for sharing this Pardes with me, Vanessa. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. This week, we have a voicemail from Clover. My name is Clover. I'm from Salem, Massachusetts, and I was just thinking about something, and it it just blew my mind, because in the first book, S- Professor Snape says, I can teach you how to bewitch the mind, I can show you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death, and I always thought he meant, like, put, like, a cork stopper in a potion, but then... I'm reminded of, like, the times that he saved Harry. Like, for example, in the first book, when Coral is trying to, like, spell him off his broom, and then Snape is, like, trying to undo it. And he was literally stopping death. And so I just wanted to tell you guys. Bye. Clover, first of all, I think you're exactly right. I think Snape has multiple meanings that are at play here. But I'm also thinking of the bazaar, the bezoar, right? Like that's not just something that stops Ron dying, but it's also like kind of looks like a cork being put into a bottle, right? You jam that down someone's throat in a very uncomfortable way. And that's something that we learned from Snape right in book one as well. So I think you're you're very smart to think about that more more carefully. Yeah, it's interesting, right? This thing that Snape and Voldemort have in common, which is this like belief that people want immortality. I, if somebody said I could stop death, I'd be like, that's okay. I think death is good at the right time, not too soon. <laughs> but, like, I don't want to live forever. So it is interesting. I think it speaks to Snape's attraction to the dark arts, this sales pitch that he gives. It is a good sales pitch. Turns out he was in the wrong job. He should have been a salesman all along. Casper, it is now our opportunity and pleasure to offer a blessing to a character in the chapter. Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Dumbledore. Who? <laughs> he turns out he's the headmaster. Vital character. Pay attention to him. He's not around forever. <laughs> Dumbledore burned. <laughs> Mostly because we see his, I don't want to say loneliness, but his solitude in the work. And... He's putting himself in danger. I mean, he's going to extraordinary diligence to figure out not just the the scope of the Horcruxes, but the content and the placement and the typology, right? Like his, his developed thinking around the four houses, his close investigation of the Gaunt family home, and now his knowledge that he is dying. 
I can imagine myself if if I was in that position, I'd be so lonely. And I think part of his nearly desperate convincing of Harry in this moment is to not feel alone and to to have some sense of of legacy. And you know, he's staring down the barrel of a gun of a world that is completely enraptured in Voldemort's power and under its thumb. And I admire Dumbledore, and I I wish I had his courage and his courage of conviction. How about you, Vanessa? Who do you want to bless? I want to bless Ginny. She just gets mentioned offhandedly here that she is the conduit to Lucius's plot. And we now know her as this, like, incredible, strong, amazing, hilarious, athletic, badass. And the fact that at one point Lucius Malfoy saw her as nothing more than a conduit is just, like, so gross to me. And I, you know, we all do that to each other all the time where we reduce each other to something much Mm. smaller than what we are. And so I would like to offer a blessing to Ginny for embodying the fullness of, you know, characters who like, if this was were a lesser book, Ginny would have been killed off and all the men would have been lauded as like great saviors of hers. But instead we get to watch her grow and become this awesome woman. Hmm. Hmm. Well, friends, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or come and join the amazing community of people supporting us on Patreon. We have these fabulous new tiers, including a very special enamel pin, and it means so much to us to know that you're supporting us. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and sign up to the Common Ground newsletter to be the first to know about our fall and winter pilgrimages this year. One of them is going to involve me, just saying. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 24, Sectum Sempra, through the theme of regret. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, associate produced by Ariana Martinez. Our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bowl, and we are distributed by PRX. We'd like to thank Clover for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. And I just want to give a special message. Happy birthday to my best friend, Kim. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Oh, that is what Britney Spears was writing about in her <laughs> song, Oops, I Did It Again. She's actually borrowing from Lucius's diary. Oops, I did it again. I gave up some soul. <laughs> Got lost in the game. Tried to frame your daughter. Oh, milky, milky snake. <laughs> <laughs>